0: Welcome back to the Missing Persons Research Hub podcast. On episode six, we're talking with Corporal Jennifer Sparks, who has been an RCMP investigator for 20 years and has spent the past eight years exclusively specializing in missing person investigations. Corporal Sparks is a District Missing Persons and Unidentified Human Remains Coordinator for E Division Southeast District based in Kelowna, British Columbia. In this role, Corporal Sparks is responsible for oversight and coordination of all missing persons and unidentified human remains cases in the district. This includes 45 detachment areas, 40 First Nations communities, approximately 900 officers, and a population of around 800,000 people. The region receives in the range of 3,000 missing person reports per year. Okay, so yeah, as I said, we're back with episode number six. And we have Jennifer Sparks here to talk to us about her role as a missing persons coordinator and her experiences with missing persons. So Jen, thank you for coming on. We really appreciate you taking the time out of your day to talk to us about your work.
1: Thank you very much, and I really appreciate this opportunity and all the work that you're doing and your fantastic
0: uh, research. Oh, thank you so much. So yeah, let's just jump right in. If you could maybe tell us about your experiences with the field of missing persons, that'd be great.
1: Okay, I'll start then by just a brief overview of my role as District Missing Persons Coordinator, because I think, um, I know it's a relatively unique role in policing, uh, so I'll just explain it for everyone's benefit. So in my role, I I have oversight of all missing person and unidentified human remains investigations in our district. Um, The role was developed back in 2013, Uh, At the time, our district officer recognized that there was a need for a specialized resource to identify and address gaps and issues in the area of missing person investigations, which, uh, as everybody knows, is a very high-risk area of policing. So we kind of realized at that time that we didn't have a handle on what the picture of missing persons in our district really looked like from a regional, regional perspective. Uh, there wasn't one specific place you could go to get information on various cases throughout the district. You could go case by case, or detachment by detachment, or investigator by investigator. Um, but you know the, the the way in which these cases were being managed um, wasn't necessarily consistent, and and uh, it it wasn't very efficient to try to to try to get information, especially from a regional perspective. Um, there was certainly no way to pull meaningful data to see how we were doing regionally from a district perspective and where we could improve. We didn't know what we didn't know. So initially um, I set out to to review the entirety of our unresolved missing person cases in our district and uh, just kind of started going through detachment by detachment and, and doing them one by one. Uh, For the first year, I I did focus primarily on our historical cases and and rarely got pulled off to do other things, which that was really great. That let me get a good handle on what was out there and and establish um, what the review process was going to be. And then the role started to evolve um, soon thereafter in in 2014. In addition to continuing with those historical reviews, I also um, took on responsibility for oversight of all of the new incoming reports at our detachments. Uh, working with investigators and supervisors on that so more in a subject matter expert role not not as you know the, the direct um, investigator or supervisor and um, eventually we we uh, ended up bringing some more missing person coordinators on board and really um, refined the uh, the job expectations and description for district and detachment level missing person coordinators and we worked together as a small team and um, a couple of years into the role, uh, it really kind of started to um, take on a lot more as uh, some new legislative requirements uh, were were coming in DC as a result of the Missing Women Commission of Inquiry recommendations in 2012, uh, which then evolved into our DC prevention policing standards for missing persons investigations um, in, uh, in 2016. And so, uh, a big part of, of my role also became um, contributing to development of policy protocols, best practices um, as well as as uh, training and mentoring. So does that kind of uh, I know there's a lot there to <laughs> that sort of a snapshot as to the genesis of, whole, of this whole thing and kind of how it's evolved?
0: Absolutely. And, and, you know, it sounds like you do so much. And that's why I'm really glad to have you on to talk about your role and, you know, what your district level model is. And we'll get into that a little bit later. But as you know, and you've identified, it is a really unique, unique role that you're in. We don't really have missing persons coordinators in Ontario. And I would even say across Canada, it's just not consistently a role that exists for missing persons police work. So I really want to hear more about what that role is. So could you tell us what the even like, is there a definition of the role and what the missing persons coordinator really does?
1: Yeah, that's a great question. And, and actually a really good place to start with the definition, um, which ironically didn't exist at the time that we initially developed my role uh, and job description. But, but then a few years later, the definition did come out in the BC Provincial policing Standards. And um, the definition is the police officer designated as responsible for oversight and support functions for the police forces missing person investigation. And as per our policing standards, uh, police services in DC are mandated to have that role in place at, as they word it, uh, either the police force district or detachment level. Um, so in my case, it's at the district level. And um, at the time that, uh, that, that the standards came into effect. We, we already had our district model up and functioning. Uh, so in other areas, they, they employed different approaches um, to meet the definition.
0: That's perfect. And that's a really great way to segue into my next question then. With that definition in mind, what what does your day-to-day look like? What does your work look like uh, as a coordinator?
1: Yeah, a great question. So the day-to-day job functions, um, <laughs> can it be a little bit difficult to describe in a nutshell? Uh, the the policing standards don't lay out a job description. so we you know we've developed our own. Uh, there there is um, definitely a lot left up to agency interpretation. Um, i'll I'll explain um, sort of how how we do it in my district. Um, really, it includes one of the things I really love about it is it, it uh, although it's a pretty specific area as policing goes, There's a lot of variety, and my role includes a really good mix, um, for me anyways, of dealing with frontline practical investigative support, um, as well as longer-term, bigger-picture, sort of more more global issues. Um, So I really enjoy that that I kind of get to sort of be involved in both aspects of that. So, I mean, I guess in, in terms of oversight, so there's, there's everything new that's coming in, and then there's the, the longer term, bigger picture issues. In terms of oversight, we, we have to, it is important to remember that the vast majority of missing person cases are open and closed by frontline policing. So, it's, it's, a, it's a high volume type of incident. Um, you know, we, we receive an average of approximately 3000 missing person reports a year in my district. And I would uh, have some level of oversight over all of them. So, you know, each day I I will review a report of every single um, missing person case that was reported in our district the day before. Um, From there, uh, you know, whether or not I get involved or to what degree I get involved is gonna totally depend on the individual case. And that may be an issue of me reaching out if I see something I need to reach out on, or it may be a case of uh, an investigator or supervisor reaching out to me if uh, if they need something. I I guess a big part of my oversight role is to, uh, how can I explain this? Missing persons are really unique because it's a common occurrence um, that the vast, vast majority of cases are, are quickly open and closed with absolutely no issue whatsoever. Uh, However, a very small percentage of them turn into, you know, amongst the the most serious high-risk type of cases that we have. And of course, when the report comes in, you don't know which ones those are going to be. So uh, a big part of my oversight role is to ensure that appropriate judgment and discretion is used in these cases. Um, And I'm constantly... uh, you know, working with both our investigators and our partner agencies to ensure that consistent strategies are applied, um, that policy and policing standards are interpreted in a consistent manner, and that that we're generally just, you know, looking at all these cases through a consistent lens in terms of risk management.
0: Okay, so then as a missing persons coordinator, you're talking about this risk management lens. Um, how does that look? How does a missing persons coordinator look at it through that risk lens?
1: Okay, so many of our, probably most of our frontline investigators um, will never deal with uh, a case that that turns out to be suspicious or a homicide or, or even um, doesn't get revolved, uh, resolved. So, you know, that's, that's what really contributes to making missing persons such a high risk area for policing Um, without a body or a victim. It's often the most subtle indicators that can formulate the grounds to believe a criminal offense has taken place. And then if those grounds exist, it doesn't mean that we know for a fact it's taken place. Obviously we don't. Um, But, you know, if, if, we formulate those grounds, that drastically changes a lot of things about the investigation uh, from potentially resourcing to the legislative authorities uh, that we're able to use to obtain information to the types of investigations, uh, investigative techniques that we use. Uh, So key part of the missing person coordinator role is to watch for these cues and flags that are really only going to show up uh, very rarely amongst a very high volume of cases. So it's, uh, you know, something that certainly takes the experience um, of of what you're looking for. Um, and it's not just for something that might be criminal. Other types of cues to watch for as well, uh, you know, that, that a missing person might be in danger due to an accident or a physical or, or mental health issue. Um, you know, Actually, just, you know, credit to our frontline, which which uh, is, I just can never give enough credit to our frontline policing. It never ceases to amaze me in my role how many lives are saved on a very regular basis by, by frontline policing, just locating missing persons, and and people never hear about this. But uh, the MPC role, that missing person coordinator role, can really uh, be key in bringing all the lines of communication together that that need to happen in these cases between different jurisdictions and different agencies and um, all the different partners that we work with uh, in order to locate these people. So it's just interesting because it's not broadly seen as a specialized area of policing, um, but it's really important to remember that that we can't expect our frontline members to be subject matter experts in everything. Um, You know, we don't in in other types of specialized areas, uh, but uh, nor can we in this in person expect them to, you know, maintain, uh, you know, libraries of contacts and processes and protocols for everything that they need to do. Um, That, you know, they they need to have a um, a subject matter expert that they can go to for these things because they've got (laughs) They've got more than enough on their plate um so does, does that kind of answer that question about sort of that that lens and the, the risk management
0: absolutely yeah it seems like the missing persons coordinator role seems like a a ded- dedicated resource to go to for all these little things and filling these key gaps um, and even that's just at the the day-to-day level so After the day-to-day level, then what else does the missing persons coordinator role involve in terms of management, oversight, and administrative support?
1: So, again, while the vast, vast majority of our cases are resolved um, and relatively quickly resolved, um, the cases that aren't resolved, which which in our district are are 0.2% on average of our cases per year are not resolved, it translates to about six people per year that we don't find, uh, but, you know, those cases add up over time um, to the, what is currently 324 historical unsolved cases that we have in our district. We also spent with the, uh, the coordination and management of the historical database that we've built uh, of those cases over reviewing them all over the, the past eight years. Um, and probably the biggest part or really the, just like the, the core concept of this historical database management is just the concept of putting all of the information in one place, um, which, you know, in the reality of, of most of these uh, unresolved cases, the, the missing persons are believed to be most likely deceased, cease. And um, I, I just can't emphasize enough the importance of the, really seems basic and fundamental, um, concept of putting all of the information in one place so that missing persons can be can be matched, compared and matched with, the, with unidentified human remains. So a really large part of my job as well is um, working in partnership with the BC Coroner Service, uh, as well as our National Center for Missing Persons and Unidentified Remains, which uh, has allowed us to put systems in place to do this uh, very, very effectively. Um, and a- another really large part of that role is the um, oversight of our our family liaison family liaison program um, and maintenance of uh, of family communication and contact schedules with with all of our families of missing persons in our districts. And this has been um, honestly, this has been the most powerful and impactful part of this role for me. And and this is what's caused me to stay in this uh, field for so long and become so so passionate about it is. Um, is the aspect of, uh, of family liaison for our cases.
0: I love to hear that. And from everything that you're saying from the day-to-day stuff, right up until the management and administrative and operational support for missing persons cases, it just makes it seem to me that this role is so very needed. So maybe I would like you to talk about that. From your experiences then, is a missing persons coordinator role vital for missing persons work?
1: Well, I personally, I might be biased, but I personally think it is. Um, if, if, if we're going to serve the public to the best of our ability as police officers and, and meet the, uh, not only just the general public expectations, but what, what any of us would, would expect if, if, if we end up being the ones living what is really, I think, everybody's worst nightmare is uh, having a loved one go missing and, and truly not know what has happened to them. Um, I I really do think it's vital. And I I think I believe that because of what I've come to learn over the past eight years of of living this. So, you know, I think the field is, it's becoming more complicated all the time uh, for, for investigators. So, you know, I really do think it's very, very important that it starts being recognized as an area that requires specialized resources. With specific experience in the area. Um, You know, there's such a fine line between, um, uh, you know, for example, use of criminal versus non criminal authorities to obtain information. Um, You know, serious concern for safety versus, um, you know, the concerns of of breaches of individual privacy. Um, you know, lots of media attention. Um, you know, the whole the whole notion of of um, being the sole connection, really, as time goes by, providing long term support indefinitely to to families who, you know, who who may never get closure. And I and I really do think the the term closure is appropriate in these cases. I think it can be overused, but in missing persons, it's um, you know, I think that's what that term was created for. Um, I, I'm I'm kind of rambling on, but. <laughs> Um,
0: that's perfect and I, I mean that's a great answer but then I have to ask what would you say to to agencies that maybe don't have that role for these purposes
1: I would welcome them and encourage them to to reach out I know I'm reaching out as much as, as I possibly can because um, you know we, we need each other um, we need to be talking to each other and, and able to represent our cases consistently uh, across the country, um, and again, that's you know that that's not to take away from from any individual um, programs or, or work that's being done locally, but it, it's just it's just a matter of of structure and the limitations of things being done in in silos. Um, so, you know, I think we need to be able to bridge the gap. Um, between admin and operations, I guess, for lack of a better term. Uh, I think, uh, you know, I don't think it's a secret that there, there tends to be a gap um, in policing between administration and operations, or there can be. Uh, and, and I think, um, you know, when we have, you know, a lot of political involvement and, and advocacy and all kinds of things, and then we have recommendations coming out, um, policies being made, I think the voice... From, from the ground level and from the operational level and from the hands-on level can be lost. I, I don't think it is um, adequately represented to be quite honest with you. I, I do see that as a very important component of my role is to try to facilitate that bilateral communication with, with all the extensive uh, changes and ongoing um, evolution in missing person investigation, policy and best practices, you know we we need that bilateral communication to ensure that certainly the policy and procedure are understood and, and p- properly upheld and employed in the field but also to ensure that uh, operational practicalities are are understood by by the administrators and the policy makers um so that we're not setting ourselves up to fail um, you know by by creating and implementing legislation and policy that that are not operationally feasible, or maybe that are actually not operationally necessary. So uh, I believe that a big part of the reason that our model works is that we're not, we do provide uh, a lot of recommendations and feedback in in terms of uh, developing administrative practices for missing persons. And we're not providing that feedback or those recommendations based on just sort of a sampling of you know pulling information from this database or that database or you know doing sort of some random samples of of interviews or you know everything that we're providing is is based on the totality of our information because we can speak to because of the structure that we've put in place and and the um the work that we've done over the past eight years we're providing recommendations and feedback based on the all of our information because we can speak to an account for every case in our district so um, you know we're not really having to explain (laughs) what the sample was or what the parameters were or you know how that information was chosen we're just providing what's there and you and I've talked about this before and you know the lack of research and you know I do feel frustrated sometimes because I know that part of the frustration on your end with with the the lack of research is the lack of available data and we do have the data and so we you know we just need to communicate it so in a sense our model can produce the research or produce the data on its own does that make sense
0: Absolutely. And it's a great segue into talking about this district level model for data management that you have going on in your district, which you've been obviously a key part of. Um, so could you talk to us about this district level model for data management and maybe some of the visible outcomes from it?
1: Sure, sure. I'll have to uh, pick and choose some examples because, again, there's a lot there. But, um You you and I had discussed uh, some of the the numbers in our most recent annual report. And one of the things that really stands out there as a visible outcome of our uh, very hands-on data management um, approach to missing persons is that uh, we have had a noticeable decline in the number of reports classified as missing persons over the last several years, really since uh, since 2016, we've been on a steady decline. Now, this does not mean that there are less missing people. Uh, it, it doesn't mean that there are less actual phone calls being made to the police. What it means is that we were previously categorizing a number of different types of instances and occurrences as missing person when, in fact, um, they really should have been classified as something else. So that's uh, become quite a... A uh, significant part of my role is checking the classification. Uh, we refer to it as the scoring code of, of each and every case in our district, uh, and I work with my with my uh, my team of local coordinators on that as well. We go to great lengths to ensure that all of our cases are appropriately classified. And again, I mean that's that's you know based on on our interpretation of um, what we feel is the most appropriate use of our codes, but we are implying uh, applying it consistently across quite a broad geographical area. You know, to give some context to that, in operational policing, the workload of certain administrative processes associated to each case that is classified as missing person is is quite significant, and obviously it's there for reason because it's much needed in cases where people are actually missing. Um, but in the past, prior to us uh, sort of um, standardizing, standardizing and tightening up the way that, that we're looking at these, um, it was also being done sort of almost on a better to be on the safe side sort of thing, but without really sort of applying <laughs> uh, logic to it necessarily. We were doing a lot of these things also for, for people who are not missing. You know, a, a perfect example would be adding them to CPIC As a missing person sort of just to be on the safe side so two issues with this obviously creates a lot of unnecessary work but also those entries uh, are then used and relied upon in a number of ways out there uh, for statistical purposes and and contribute to um really contribute to a lot of the public misperceptions that are out there about about missing persons. So I'll just give some examples like there's lots of examples but I'm just going to pick some really really obvious ones just to give you an idea of what I'm talking about. But one of the things we, we noticed is that um, there was no code to account for people who their whereabouts was actually known and this is something that has skyrocketed as technology has evolved and people have cell phones and sat phones and spot beacons and all these kinds of things out in the wilderness, which is a huge issue in our geographical area out here in DC, obviously, um, people that are basically saying, Hey, you know, I'm on my snowmobile. I'm out here. I'm stuck. Um, can, can somebody come and get me out? And because for lack of a better code to call that, they were getting called missing people and adding to CPEC as missing people and, and you know, getting added to the tallies of all the missing people that we uh, that we supposedly have. So, you know, we, we created a new code for that um, called Stranded Person. And um, now we watch very closely and, and have sort of done an education campaign, you know, to make sure that those are appropriately classified. Um, another example would be uh, cases, this is like a completely then to go to the complete, opposite end of the spectrum, um, cases of identified partial remains. So people who their partial remains have been found, deceased, but, but not their complete remains. And all of those cases, and there are lots of them, lots and lots of those, uh, all on topic as missing people. So yes, I mean, if you look deeper into it, you realize that, oh, okay, they're, well, they've actually been partially found and, and we know this and this and we know what happened. But I mean when you know when the lists get run and, and the reports get presented, um, they, they're factored into the numbers and then again there's you know all the administrative things that go along with that. Um, so we develop another way of, of managing those that they're not going to fall off the radar. they're not going to get um, get lost, but we're going to identify or sorry, we're going to manage our identified partial remains cases in a different way, but not as missing people. I could give you many other examples. I just picked sort of two totally different types of examples, Um, but you know, we probably don't have time to go through all of them. I wish we
0: did, yeah, because this is such an insider perspective that we honestly don't hear about. And you've brought it up a little bit lightly here that, you know, it does contribute to misinformation and public misperceptions of what's happening in the field of missing persons. So I have to ask Jen, can you give us any of your numbers um, of missing persons in your district resulting from this model?
1: Oh, I can give you any numbers that, uh, that you would like. What, what types of numbers would you be interested in?
0: Well, you brought it up a little bit in the beginning. You talked about the cases that were closed and opened by frontline policing and then how very few were um, historical or cases that remained open. Can you tell us those numbers and what the maybe reality is from your insider perspective? Oh yeah, that's
1: um, that's a great question, and actually one that I love to talk about because it's been so surprising and and enlightening. Um, so I'm quite eager to share these numbers, uh, and, and I feel quite confident sort of in, in how how we now are able to provide these numbers. So as I said, if you go back over the past uh, seven year average, we have had an average of about 3,000 reports received each year, and on average. Um, the person's not located at the end of each year uh, is six six people not located out of 2,000. Um, If you actually crunch the numbers, the percentage of persons not located uh, at the end of the year out of all the people reported missing that year is 0.2%. Another just sidebar interesting um, stat is of those, um, if you apply the percentage of our uh, unresolved missing persons in which foul play is suspected as the reason for their disappearance. If you apply that percentage, which is about 11% to the 0.2% that don't get resolved, then on average of all our total missing person reports, those persons that are not located and foul play is suspected has the reason for their disappearance is 002 percent. And, uh, you know, again, I'd be really happy to show and explain to anybody how we've arrived at these numbers and the source of it. And, and it is ongoing because we're, um, you know, we're staying on top of, of everything sort of live time as it happens. But I think, you know, in, in the people that I have talked about this, that, that numbers uh, come as quite a surprise. Because, and it was to me too, you know, when I started this uh, role, I I read, (laughs) you you will laugh because I've heard your comments before on that there isn't any research out there, but there is some, and I know some of it's yours, and and I read what I could, and and sort of the accepted number out there uh, was that um, it was 96% of of cases, people were located and cases were resolved. And uh, I just, you know, the more I kept going through it, I'm like, but it can't be, it's, it's way more than that. And, you know, so again, we've been looking at every single case and, and, and crunching the numbers ourselves, uh, it, indeed it is. So, um, yeah, and I, I guess the only way you can arrive at that is looking at everything as opposed to looking at a sample and, and knowing that, you know, however you're classifying things is being done In a consistent manner, Um, so those are some of the numbers. Um, You know, also we can we can speak to uh, to demographics, um, which is fairly interesting. Uh, We can speak to uh, cause, uh, reason uh, for being missing, uh, or you know, sort of predominant theory anyway. Um, So yeah, I mean, ask away.
0: (laughs) I think that that is. Another unique position that you're in, Jen, because I have to say that in all of my research and experiences with police personnel, I can't pinpoint one other person (laughs) and can say that, listen, this is true, this is reflective of what's happening, and it is consistent. I've noticed that there's a lot of inconsistencies in most things, like you said, do get classified as missing person, even if that's not the case. So. It is shocking to me. And when you told me about it, I was kind of floored because that's not what I'm finding in my research, but that again points to the data that I'm using. And it's great that we're able to get that insider perspective from you. So thank you for sharing that. And I I, I guess that what you're saying is that if anyone is interested in learning more about that data management, they could reach out to you. Is that fair to say, Jen? Oh, absolutely. Exactly. Okay, awesome. So then I, I mean, I have one more question and we're getting close to the end of our conversation here, but outside of... You know clear identification of figures on missing persons what else does the data management process um, allow you to do
1: oh so many different things we're kind of generating new projects all the time because of issues that are arising out of of having this information and this data um, all kinds of different um, ways to help us plan responses allocate Resor- allocate resources appropriately, um, modify policy and protocols where we need to, so many things, I mean, so, some some recent and ongoing things that we have, uh, we're working with um, search and rescue to, to sort of standardize some mapping te- techniques and and uh, documentation practices to account for, for physical search areas, um, a, a big one, and I know you've touched on this in, in other, um, work is uh, working with with contracted caregivers for youth and adults, actually on supportive housing policies, um, group home policies, reporting policies, all these kinds of things. In in a we do a lot of proactive stuff, but again, you know the basis for for the proactive work that we do is the information and data that we have, and that directs us accordingly. Um, I almost feel like a lot of this stuff would have to be a completely separate conversation <laughs> um
0: Fair <enough>. yeah. <laughs> yeah. maybe for another day maybe i'll have to get you back on again to speak some more maybe we're leaving more questions than answers but at least it's good well, right at that basis of understanding out there yeah i mean there's
1: I, one more thing though i, I do want to say because this is huge um, and and very very important to me um is having the information that we have and, and I didn't really explain in detail like how we work in terms of collecting all of the information, not only to sit on our police file but to share it um, with with uh, the coroner and, and other partners for um, comparison with unidentified remains. This is really one of the most um, impactful things is because of the handle that we have on our cases, we when unidentified bodies are located, we are able to know almost immediately if it's one of our missing people or not, because such a big, big, big part of our model is having all the information in one place and easily accessible by an FME that's engaged with it. That, and then also being able to answer the questions that are raised, which happens all the time, Uh, you know, stuff will be raised by anybody in the public or you know come up to the media or you know as you know there's all kinds of questions and misinformation out there and, and we're just very proud of being able to answer to it all very uh, very quickly um, with with that 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 are directly sourced so you know when when inquiries come in we're we're able to respond and and refer them to the appropriate place immediately because we have shall you do in your words a central hub and really that's what we are we're we're a central hub for missing persons in district. I don't know. I'm rambling again. Like I said, you know, I love to talk about this stuff and there's so much to talk about.
0: <laughs> it's great though, because your passion is really coming through and it's also shown um, to be effective in terms of producing accurate and consistent data. I mean, you have the numbers, you've talked about it a little bit on this podcast. Um, and so it really presents an area for maybe other agencies to look at. And so that's my two cents on it. But I want to just leave the space for you to maybe add a final call to action message or any final thoughts or comments that I may have missed throughout the podcast. So yeah, just, I'm opening up the space. Do you have any thoughts or calls to action that you want to add to the conversation here?
1: There is one more thing I want to throw in because I just realized I forgot to mention it. And it's again, one of the most important things. And it's of course top of mind because I was just, um, you know, reading part of the uh, independent civilian review with respect to links because this comes up all the time you know um are are these links can be recognized who's looking for them how are they looking for them that's another really really effective part of our model is that you know we are there's you know you'll hear it debated round and round what's the best way to look at these links and how to do it I'm talking about links between missing person cases that potentially may be related, and um, that's something again we're really proud of our model for how it works uh, because the approach that we're taking, uh, we, you know, we're not we're not relying on say an algorithm or you know a keyword search or a particular you know checkbox on a template or, or whatever else to to look for these links. Uh, not saying that there's not a place for that because there is uh, as, as, as a supplement. Um, we don't think that there is any substitute for hands-on human oversight of every case. You know, I, without getting into detail, um, we are making links and we have, um, you know, established links and and uh, which has resulted in Prevention of what could have become much larger issues. Uh, so, so we know firsthand it's working. But you can't have that hands on oversight, human oversight without resources to do it, uh, specialized resources to do it. So, I guess that will just take me to your, your question of any final thoughts and call out for action. And, um, I, I yeah, will just say, as I've already mentioned, Missing persons needs to be recognized as a specialized area of subject matter expertise and policing. Uh, you need to have the right person in the right role. And the role needs to have some longevity to it. This is very, very important to this role. Yeah, great if you can bring the, the skills and experience, absolutely, because you know, being placed into a role doesn't make somebody a subject matter expert, but you know, it, it, it can be learned. Um, but there's no substitute for the continuity and the longevity. Rotating assignments, rotating temporary assignments don't work. Officers need to be allowed to stay in that role or encouraged to stay in that role long enough to have knowledge of all the cases in their area of responsibility to form those strong working relationships. It's it's all about relationships is what makes this work uh, with with you know both internally with police and with, with public and partner agencies. So, yeah, this is a huge thing. Uh, officer turnover, I and mean, this goes much broader than missing persons, but ter- turnover is one of the biggest downfalls in so many areas of policing, uh, at least in the RTP, the way we move around, um, I won't speak for municipal agencies, but um, th- this is a, a huge issue with long term missing person cases. And it's an area in, in which our model works, because we can maintain that continuity as officers, you know, rotate through our, our small detachment areas and limited duration posting, uh, which, which is, I mean, that's, that's just always going to be an issue that we're going to have to deal with in the SBT. So we have to put structures to mitigate that, you know, that was one of the things that we raised in, um, in the MMIWG calls to action and, uh, they were hundred percent correct Huge issue, um, but we don't feel that we need to, uh, you know, go back to the drawing board and, figure out how we're going to mitigate that because we feel we do have a very effective way to mitigate that. You know, to just dovetail off of that, I think we need those subject matter experts in coordinator positions with responsib- responsibility for a broad geographical area. And then I think we need to, you know, spread those across the map. Um, you know, it, we need one of those for all of our geographical regions so that we can talk to each other. And that we can liaise on our cases, on our best practices, on our interpretation of, of all the stuff that's coming down, and how we're going to apply it. Um, we can be accessible to each other and, and work seamlessly on these multi-jurisdictional investigations and issues that affect all of us. I mean, it's, uh, there's no boundaries to this stuff, and you know that's that's so obvious. Every time I liaise with my counterparts, who you know, but several of them who are absolutely outstanding all, all across the country, but, but we don't have nearly enough of us. And so, yeah, I always go back to my patchwork quilt analogy. I just I just sort of see it as this, this big patchwork blanket laid across the country that, that, you know, with all these geographical regions, that each one is a little bit different and they've got different issues and how they, you know, deal with things might be a bit different, it's different colors, different shapes, different sizes. But there's no holes in it and they're all tied together at the edges and and we're we're all connected that way and we're working together uh, to provide consistent oversight and accountability across the whole country. And I think it's very doable. I I think to end on a positive, I think it's very, very doable. I I believe it is. Uh, We know it works and um, we think we can do this? I love it.
0: No, it's great. And that is the best way to end this conversation. Listen, Jen, you are A trailblazer. Um, And I just I can't tell you how grateful I am for you coming on this podcast and sharing your experiences and your knowledge and also talking about that district level model, because I think it's something that could really honestly change the process of searching for and investigating missing persons and I think it's something that the field needs to hear about more generally so i encourage any agencies listening any police personnel to get plugged into jen and even just pay attention to what's being said in this conversation and again like i said jen thank you so so much for coming on the podcast i really appreciate it
1: well thank you very much for the opportunity and for your enthusiasm as well it's great working with you
0: Thanks for tuning in to the Missing Persons Research Hub podcast. Until next time.